0: The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of part one of Boule de Suif. Our story begins as the Prussians are about to occupy Rouen. Everything about the passing French soldiers tells us of France's defeat. They are disorganized, undisciplined, dirty, tattered, fatigued, listless, leaderless. What remains of the decimated army consists not of trained and dedicated soldiers but of peaceable citizens and skittish volunteers, soap-chandlers and grain-merchants, scoundrels and bandits. And they are trailed by the French general, vanquished, powerless, and dismayed by this disastrous and final overthrow. A shuddering silent dread settles over the city as they wait in terror to quarter the enemy. The soldiers come knock on the citizens' doors, and disappear within their houses. But soon calm is restored. The people of Rouen discover that there are advantages to playing the genial host to their occupiers, and they begin chatting freely with them around the family table, justifying their hospitality with the notion that it is only right to be civil in one's own house. Out of doors they resume a pretense of defiance and every once in a while, fishermen haul to the surface of the river the body of a German killed by someone for whom defiance is more than a pretense. After a time, some local tradesmen become tired of their money passing into German hands, and eager to resume their commercial affairs. They use the advantages they have gained from their cordiality to obtain permits from the Prussians to go to Havre where many of their business interests lie, and where power is still in the hands of the French. A carriage is engaged for the journey, and ten passengers prepare to embark. We begin to learn about them. We learn that three of them are nobles and businessmen, who, while it is true they are traveling for business, plan never to return to occupied Rouen, and intend to move on to England if the Prussians approach Havre. Maupassant mocks the rich Normans' disloyalty to home and country, and readiness to flee if it serves their pecuniary interests. In our translation, he says that they all had the same plans, being of the same temperament. I've always preferred the harsher sound of a different translation. All three had the same intentions, being of the same ilk. Their three wives tuck themselves cozily into the back corner of the carriage with their little copper foot-warmers, while they engage in what seems to be a habitual boasting of their mutual advantages. As the carriage pulls away, the society they have left behind is blurred and then obscured in a mantle of snow, and this carriage has become a universe all its own. We have an opportunity to better know its passengers. The first of the nobles we are introduced to is Monsieur Loiseau, a practical joker, shrewd rascal, and infamous cheat who has made his vast fortune selling bad wine at low prices. His wife is a bull of a woman who keeps a close eye on the books and a tight hold on the family purse. Next we meet Monsieur Carl Lamedon, a cotton trader and career opportunist who opposed the empire with courteous weapons, only so that his devotion would be better appreciated when he nobly converted to their cause. His pretty wife is opportunistic in her own way. She is known as the consolation of the quartered officers. The Comte de Bréville proudly bears his ancient name and lordly title, a title bestowed upon his family because one of them bore the bastard child of King Henry the Fourth. His wife was the mere daughter of a shipowner, but an air of breeding and a rumored affair with Louis-Philippe were enough to make nobles vie with each other for her affections. These cheats, scoundrels, wantons, money-grubbers, braggarts, phonies, and hypocrites represent, Maupassant says, quote, society, the strong, established society of good people with religion and principle, unquote four passengers remain. There are the two homely nuns, making a deliberate show, Maupassant seems to suggest, of their devouring faith. There is Cornudet, the Democrat, for whom it seems the essence of political activism is pontificating over a tankard of beer, and whose contribution to the cause of war is to dig entrenchments at the outskirts of town, and then, when the enemy approaches, run away. And last there is our title character, Boul de Suif, or Ball of Fat, a plump, ripe, fresh, attractive, much-sought-after prostitute, with depth in her dark eyes. Forced to occupy the same space as Cornudet and Boul de Suif, the nobles are drawn together in a kinship of social superiority, loudly boasting of money matters and scornfully whispering abuses. The sharp lines of class division are blurred, however, as time passes, and travel slows, and hunger increases. And it is discovered that the only one with the forethought to bring provisions for this journey was Boule de Suif. When she pulls from beneath her seat the basket bursting with food, their scruples take a back seat to their appetites. Whether they give in readily, like Loiseau, or only after feigning illness, like Madame carre they all give in. Despite their having treated her with unconstrained condescension, Boule de Suif herself is generous and kind. She shows only a momentary reluctance to share, and that because she fears insulting them with the offer. In what seems at first to be a reluctant and dutiful effort to exchange pleasantries for provisions, They begin to talk to her, and eventually, even sincerely, to warm to her. They cannot help but be impressed when they learn that, unlike all of them who left Rouen for personal gain, she left for fear of punishment after she tried to strangle a Prussian officer with her bare hands. With Rouen behind them, desperate circumstance uniting them, and a more communal air established among them, the journey continues until they are stopped by a German officer. The second of my posts to the Facebook group concerned my favorite moments from this first part of Boule de Suif. When it comes to literary style, my personal taste does not generally run towards sarcasm. I prefer sincerity. But in this story, Maupassant is the master of both, and I find that the existence of one has the effect of giving emphasis to the other. I love how he mocks the incompetence of the National Guard, and their desperate eagerness to lay down arms when the enemy approach. Quote, the members of the National Guard, who, for the past two months, had been reconnoitering with the utmost caution in the neighboring woods, occasionally shooting their own sentinels, and making ready for flight whenever a rabbit rustled in the undergrowth, had now returned to their homes. Their arms, their uniforms, all the death-dealing paraphernalia with which they had terrified all the milestones along the high road for eight miles round, had suddenly and marvelously disappeared." I love how he sarcastically scorns the hypocrisy and cowardice of the citizens of Rouen, who ingratiate themselves to their captors behind closed doors. Why should one provoke the hostility of a person on whom one's whole welfare depended? such conduct would savor less of bravery than of foolhardiness. And foolhardiness is no longer a failing of the citizens of Rouen, as it was in the days when their city earned renown by its heroic defenses. I love how, in his brief introduction of the nuns, he makes it eminently clear that their humble devoted piousness is not much more than pretense. The other, of sickly appearance, had a pretty but wasted countenance, and a narrow, consumptive chest, sapped by that devouring faith which is the making of martyrs and visionaries. And I love the deadpan manner in which he introduces the outrageous and comical vices of the French nobles, and then declares, These six people occupied the farther end of the coach, and represented society with an income the strong, established society of good people with religion and principle, Unquote. His satire of vice is unforgiving, but in this story, he is just as strongly inclined and deftly able to pay homage to virtue. I was moved by his poignant tribute to the rare and courageous men of the underground resistance, and their noble, unrewarded acts of sabotage, Quote, The mud of the riverbed swallowed up these obscure acts of vengeance, savage yet legitimate, these unrecorded deeds of bravery, these silent attacks fraught with greater danger than battles fought in broad day, and surrounded, moreover, with no halo of romance. For hatred of the foreigner ever arms a few intrepid souls, ready to die for an idea. I think I am disinclined toward sarcasm in the hands of a thoroughgoing cynic. And Maupassant may be. I don't know his other works well enough to say. But in Boule de Suif, he also demonstrates a capacity for reverence. He just doesn't think objects of reverence are to be found where most people would look. The last of my posts to the Facebook group was called, This Land is Mine. Though it is not the central focus of the story, one thing I admire about Boule de Suif is its consideration of the question, how should one act under an occupation? This theme happens also to be addressed in my very favorite movie of all time, This Land is Mine, and I often teach these two works of art to my students side by side. If you haven't seen the movie, don't wait. It is available streaming on Amazon right now. In Boule de Suif, Maupassant describes the terror that possesses the citizens of Rouen at the occupier's approach, quote, "...that terror which follows in the wake of cataclysms, of deadly upheavals of the earth, against which all human skill and strength are vain," unquote. He suggests that their vision of the brutal, conquering soldiers might perhaps have been exaggerated, when they do not in fact arrive, quote, "...covered with glory," Murdering those who defend themselves, making prisoners of the rest, pillaging in the name of the sword, and giving thanks to God to the thunder of cannon. He shows that the reality of the German soldier, with his well bred politeness, allows them to rationalize appeasement and to seek advantage. For, why should one provoke the hostility of a person on whom one's whole welfare depended? And he honors those who, even in the face of this reality, defy the enemy courageously, on principle, at the risk of their own lives. Men who commit, quote, obscure acts of vengeance, savage yet legitimate, unrecorded deeds of bravery, silent attacks fraught with greater danger than battles fought in broad day, and surrounded, moreover, with no halo of romance, unquote. These issues are covered in This Land is Mine. I'll do my best here to avoid spoilers that might undermine this breathtaking movie with its riveting and ever-twisting plot, for those who haven't seen it yet. In this movie, French citizens try to make life supportable under the occupation, buying and selling on the black market, gratefully receiving German soldiers as customers, and complying with the enemy's ordinances. Even to burn their schoolbooks. A few intrepid souls engage in acts of sabotage, risking their lives to drive the enemy out from within, but, to complicate matters, also risking retaliation. For the superficially cordial German rulers respond to sabotage by taking hostages and shooting them against a wall. One of the animating questions of the movie is. Does sabotage pay? According to one character, quote, The man who secretly resists with acts of sabotage is a coward. He escapes, and innocent people die. Unquote. And to another, quote, Sabotage is the only weapon left to a defeated people. The example of their heroism is contagious, and our resistance grows. It makes us suffer, starve, and die, but though it increases our misery, it will shorten our slavery." I sincerely hope that none of us will ever face the question of how to behave under an occupation. But we face the question of how to do what is right, on principle, with an eye to the long-range future, every day. Reading great literature helps to enliven such questions, and to inform our answers. I look forward to sharing with you the next installment of Bull de Suif.